Welcome to Scores and Pours, the podcast where you learn about wine and classical music, hosted by sommelier Jill Mott and me, radio host Emily Reese. On today's episode, we are going to talk about preserving and conserving, and we will elaborate in a matter of moments. If you like the show, we'd love to have a financial contribution from you. It's not free to do this podcast. It takes a lot of time and a lot of money, too, sometimes. So we'd love to have your support, and you can check out Tears on our Patreon page, where you could get cool merch and patron-only content. It's patreon.com slash scoresandpours. We'd love to thank all of our existing patrons. We couldn't do this without you. Hi, Joe Mott. Hello, Emily Reese. Uh, well, you know, welcome to Scores and Bores. <laughs> <laughs> you know, did, did you know it's a podcast where you can learn? You can learn about classical music and wine if you choose. Yeah. Today is a goodie. Today is a really good one. Um, we're talking about preserving and conserving things. And when I texted Emily and I was like, "So, are you gonna?" She sent me the playlist, and then I was like, "Are you gonna?" Talk about the preserving of like an instrument, you know, via a certain composer or a, a this type of technique. And she's like, no. No. <laughs> I was like, all right. Yeah. I can't wait. You have a really cool, quite elaborate. I feel like yours is going to be elaborate. A lot more than mine. I'm going to ramble. Oh, neat. I'm already okay. rambly. Well, I mean, you know, I don't know. It seems like a good skill for serving wine and talking about wine. Yeah, I'm going to talk about the preserving and conserving of a couple different traditions in a world that is, you know, more and more modern. There are advancements in winemaking and viticulture with each, you know, passing month. Yeah. That said, there are a lot of people that are going back to the roots. There's obviously the natural wine movement, not not adding or taking away anything other than kind of being the shepherd in the hand. And I'm not going to talk about natural wine today and yeah. that that that's kind of going back to times of yore because in the end, that's not how it was. Natural wine, I mean, that's a kind of a new-ish thing. People have been adulterating wine since since wine began. Yeah, I mean, do you think that's just because they really kind of only partially knew what they were doing? Well, wine, you know, yeah, they didn't know how yeasts worked. Certain cultures had a preference for sweet, so they would spike it with honey, or, and it was also a preservation technique. Mm -hmm. But wine back in the day just tasted awful, so they would do things to try to make it taste good. They'd blend it with beer. They would spike it with salt water to try to preserve wow. it. They, I mean, you kind of kitchen sink yeah. in, in terms of ideas and, and amalgamation of ways that people adulterated their wine. So this natural wine movement is, a, is actually yeah. a fairly new thing. But like I said, I'm rambling and I'm not going to talk about natural wine. So. <laughs> I'm going to talk about ethnomusicology and the study and practice of collecting folk music. It's so hard for me to not say folk. And I even looked it up and it's like folk and it's just, that's weird. The L's used to be pronounced in words like talk and walk and folk, but... Not since you were born. Not since I was born. <laughs> and I still say folk music, which is, I just, I've always said it like that. I don't know why. But anyway, that's what I'm going to talk about today. Um, before there were ethnomusicologists, because that term and idea was a 20th century term, early 20th century term, 
Before that, they were called folklorists. Folklorists. Yeah, let's drink some wine. How do I even start? Okay, I guess I'll just start here. I'll start here. I'm going to pour for Emily and myself a producer that is out of Piemonte. So we are in the northwestern part of Italy. And Piemonte is very well known for quite a slew of different red and white grapes. But the main red grapes are Nebbiolo, Barbera, and Dolcetto. And Dolcetto is usually known for being this kind of fruity, a little bit lower acid, kind of juicy wine that you don't really take too seriously. And in the years, we'll say in the last 10 years, 15 years, it's either been cheap and cheerful and kind of gross, meaning only if I were on a patio in Piemonte (laughs) eating pizza or something or pasta, I would want it. Or I would, although I'd probably seek out a natty wine bar and drink real stuff, or I would, you know, there are producers that have lathered their poor little dolcetto in a lot of new oak and are selling it for, you know, $480 a case, meaning, you know, it's like a $60 dolcetto. And that's just absurd, Hmm. right? Yeah. And so, and harvesting really late. I mean, then you're just getting this like vanilla laden, heavy, sappy, not okay. So I brought with me a producer that is from the Alto Monferrato. So they're really far east, and I'm showing Emily a map right now from Wine Folly, which is a pretty great map of Piemonte. And as you can see, there are over, I think there are around 10 appellations, meaning governed areas that include Dolcetto as like the main ingredient and or it's on the label. Okay. So like Dolcetto de Aqui, meaning Dolcetto from Aqui, Dolcetto de Asti, all these places. Okay. And it and it can be fine, right? This place has decided to not they don't they aren't within those boundaries. Okay. So they're actually kind of where we see the pink area there on the yes, map. They yes. are on the far eastern regions of Piemonte. And what's cool about these guys is they're making wines in a way that tastes like they were made 40 or 50 years ago. Like they're harvesting at the right time. They're not slathering in a lot of new oak, but they're also not trying to quick to market. Let's put, you know, put it in some stainless steel quick and juicy, tutti fruity, dump some fast, you know, fermenting yeast in there and to market. So Rocco di Carpenetto is the name of the winery. Um, Lydia is the winemaker, female winemaker, which is cool. And this Dolcetto, the name of the wine is called Aurora, which in the Carpentese dialect, which was around in, I think, the 19th century, so 1800s, means now, which the wine drinks really well now, but you could also cellar it for a little time. And I will tell you more about Rocca di Carpenetto in a moment, but what do you think when you smell it? I think it smells like potpourri. Wow. Okay. It does. Kind of dried roses. Ooh, yes. I like it. I like what you've done there. Yes. (laughs) That's from a movie. I can't remember. Yes. (laughs) Yes. I like what you've done there. Yes. 2018, by the way. Okay, so potpourri. I love the dried rose. Yeah, rose petals. Yeah, dried rose. I get just the smallest amount of like leather. Like this little, or, or suede, like some hmm. sort of finished hide. <laughs> and I say that with just like, remind, it's like complex for a little dolcetto. I mean, usually yeah. with dolcetto, you're saying plum, blueberry. Okay. You know, then you kind of start to stretch, you know, you're stretching. Your mind is, okay. you know, just searching for things to yeah. talk about when in reality, the color is pretty dark. 
Usually yeah. Dolcetto can have nice color, but this is a pretty dark one. Give it a little taste. Whoa, acid. Acid, but also... And tannin, too. Mm-hmm, tannin. So this is aged for... It's fermented in stainless steel, but it's aged mostly in concrete. Okay. Which is cool. Concrete is a vessel that was, you know, used kind of prevalently in the 50s through the 90s or 80s in and around northern Italy. But I like that it's not too sappy. It's fruity, like dolcetto, but it's not trying to be this, like, cheap mass market $12 dolcetto. It's got a lot to say. Yeah. It's from a really small, this vineyard called Gaguero. There's a small parcel that's less than, it's like 0.3-ish hectares, so that's really small, that they get this dolcetto from, and I don't know, I just really like it. I think it's great. I'll talk more about how they're preserving tradition uh, once we listen to a little music. Okay. Yeah. Let's listen to, uh, right off the bat, some Bela Bartok, just so we can get some music in our ears, huh? Love it. This is a piece by Hungarian composer Bela Bartok based off of folk music from Romania. Digging in those in those strings. It's I was, such a good performance. I was kind of pretending in the booth to dance to this, and then I realized I don't know how to dance in a Romanian style, and that's not okay. <laughs> so, uh, well, that one I think that's stick dance. Folk music, you know, a lot of it is going to be dances, and it, it it runs the gamut of human emotion. But there's a lot of celebratory folk music, right? For just that, just exactly that celebrating stuff. Um, so lots of dancing. Bela Bartok is known as one of the founders of ethnomusicology, and ethnomusicology encompasses the study and preservation of music from other cultures, and the reason. Bela Bartok and a friend of his, another Hungarian man, Zoltan Kodai, are known as the founders of ethnomusicology is because they were really the first ones that could afford an, a big giant recorder because they weren't, they weren't tiny back then. Yeah. And they could haul it all around the Hungarian countryside and record all these wow. people singing. And then they would transcribe it, turn it into music, and then sometimes they would then you know, turn it into orchestral works or piano music. And, and so this is a this is a representation of one of those times that they would travel around the, say, Romanian countryside. Yep. They would transcribe the dance into a, to, to a proper song, mm-hmm. and then they would actually transcribe it further into a work for strings, yep. say. Cool. Yep. And, you know, that's... Thus preserving slash conserving. Exactly. Conserving the folk music... Yeah. of their culture. And now they were Hungarian, not Romanian, but they basically, uh, Bartok especially, really kind of advanced to kind of similar languages as Hungarian. So he would go into Romania, Bulgaria, Slovakia, Serbia, and then eventually he went to Turkey 
And we'll talk about that in, in a minute because uh, he met up with a Turkish composer there and they did some work together. So we'll hear some of the music from the Turkish composer. But Bartok, this ended up changing his composition entirely. And, and there's this really great quote from him. He said, the outcome of these studies, meaning, you know, traveling the countryside and different places and recording all of these folk songs, he says, the outcome of these studies was of decisive influence upon my work because it freed me from the tyrannical rule of the major and minor keys. Hmm. So, and he further goes on to say that it also kind of opened his mind to the idea of more free rhythm and more complex rhythm, and also just tempo in general, just kind yeah. of ebbing and flowing. And so it really changed him, musically speaking, and, and you hear it reflected in, in his music. Can yeah. we listen to something else, maybe whether it's another of the Romanian dances or something else that he did that yeah, you let's, recommend? Yeah, let's listen to a little bit of uh, uh, piano work of his. It's called 15 Hungarian Peasant Songs, and uh, this is the fourth movement of that, uh, and it's a piano piece. Okay, so can we go to 4.30 approximately in this, maybe a little bit before in this recording to hear, because it's like got this sort of timbre and this rhythm that is, it couldn't be anything other than like an expression of a folk song. Yeah, let's hear it. It just sounds almost like like caroling almost with like with like a strong you could imagine it being like some sort of drum or something I just think it's great I think that drone um, and what I mean by drone is that the left hand is playing one note the whole time do yeah do yeah that's do. very evocative in the history of classical music of peasant type music bucolic oh yeah pastoral uh, a drone is is common in that type of music. Yeah. So let's listen to it one more time so you can hear that. Sure. It's very evocative of like, you know, people singing you can tell they're singing to what could be a like a drum or it could be a just like a one note horn of some sort you know um yeah super cool yeah that's awesome very cool i love i love his treatment of folk music and that's the thing too is a lot of these pieces didn't have harmonization to them so he's taking what is only a melody in some cases and giving it a harmony uh, on his own volition. And I'm curious how influenced he was by, I mean, I'm sure he was tremendously influenced by the context of the song itself, which he would have known. So yeah, yeah it's, it's really fun stuff. And we'll hear more Bartok in, in a little bit. So 
Well, when you said, I loved when you said it, it he felt like free. Do, yeah. you, do you mind just repeating what you'd said? Something about like feeling free to yeah, and get that, outside of rhythm that was conventional. Yeah, and in the early part of the statement, he talks about how it freed him from the tyrannical rule of mm. major and minor harmony. Because in Western music, that's what you learn. You learn your major keys and your minor keys okay, so, and how those relate to each other. So that's a perfect representation of both of the wines we're going to taste today in a musical sense, just in kind of theory, because in this case, Lydia, she, you obviously want to make something that tastes like Dolcetto, but in her mind, you know, the confines of Dolcetto, you're either selling Dolcetto for a very expensive amount, which is Mm -hmm. really rare, and it's usually producers that their Barolos are, you know, three figures, so then they know they can sell their Dolcetto for 50, 60 bucks, and that's ridiculous, right? Or it's like cheap and cheerful, relegated as like cheap and cheerful, and it's not really taken seriously. So this wine is just shy of $30, and it's a really serious Dolcetto, but I think she, I, I won't speak for her, but how I read her story and taste her wine, I feel like I'm in this area and it like is one of the few times I've had Dolcetto like this. I really like a producer called Ragna. Most people that drink, they're a Louis Dresner wine we've talked about in the past. Louis Dresner, great importer of wine. And they bring in this Ragna Dolcetto. And it's sort of benchmark. But this is going out of even the confines of that and saying like, look at what we're capable of. Now she, when you go online, first of all, you'll see an incredible amount of cover crop, meaning between the vines, it's just in- astoundingly alive. The trunks are like, I was going to say as big around as my forearm, but that's not really big <laughs> around. As big around as my thigh, we'll say. I mean, they're like really beefy, like just amazing in how healthy they look. Mm. And then when we go to the cellar, the cellar looks kind of modern from the outside. So you'd think, if you're driving by it, you would never know they're making this kind of wines inside. What's cool is they're, they have no temperature control. They've oriented the cellar such that they don't need to have that kind of energy flowing through it to make sure that things are controlled by temperature inside. Mm-hmm. And then they also have a wastewater treatment kind of program, which is really forward thinking. But it's also when you were you know, back 50 to 60 years ago, Water wasn't just like flowing freely. You needed to like, you were a lot of times in Italy, in Spain, in France, you were, a lot of people were bringing their clothes down to the local well to wash them, right? So you were bringing water up to your house to drink and probably boiling it before you drank it. And so I just think it's an homage to, and that just thinking about history, thinking about maintaining some sense of, what wine could have tasted like back in the 50s and just really preserving a really great flavor that is hard to find nowadays. So to scores and pours. To scores and pours. To Lydia. Badass. So badass and so flavorful. And I love how fruity it gets at the end too. I find the, I think you call it retro nasal Mm -hmm. to be quite uh, grapey fruity. And like dark red cherry fruity. Yeah, I like the dark red cherry. Yeah, because it's definitely not like red bings. It's like darker than that. Yeah, Yeah, agreed. Yeah, it's really good. Really, really good. 
Yeah, this is this is good stuff. Fifty year old vines plus, um, and then there are some young vines, twenty five ish year old vines. It's just a really cool story. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. hats off to Rocco di Carpenetto for preserving what is a legacy of great dolcetto in the area, but that it's hard to find these days. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. It's delicious. Yeah, thanks to Lee at Census Wines for bringing in this wine. You don't find it in a lot of other markets, so it's really cool to have it. Mm-hmm. What else you got for us? Well, Bela Bartok, I neglected to tell you his birth and death dates uh, earlier to give you some context. And I did say that ethnomusicology was an early 20th century kind of beginning invention of sorts in the terms of uh, people being able to record those uh, songs in the first place because recording technology wasn't around before that, right? Mm -hmm. Well, Bela Bartok and, as I mentioned, his friend and colleague Zoltan Kodai, who's a whole other amazing story in the world of classical music. Kodai, also a composer. Kodai, uh, one of the most famous music education minds in the history of... um, classical music and teaching children how to learn music and things like cool. that. Uh, so we'll talk about Kodai, I hope, someday in the future um, and maybe hear some of his music. But he, Why don't we, why, are we going to learn about Kodai while we're drinking wines from Lodi? <laughs> It'll be like, we've never had a rhyming episode. It'll just be ridiculousness. <laughs> They'll have nothing to do with each other, but yes. we'll be like, Kodai, Lodi, name another one. Name another composer quick on the quick. Shostakovich? Come on. <laughs> There's no, that's like a... That's Piston? Walter Piston? I don't know what maybe... Liston? Liston? Okay, well, that's... Yeah. I must we'll get there. You. Okay. Maybe. I yeah. don't know. <laughs> As you were saying. So, uh, yeah, Zoltan Kodai, uh, another Hungarian composer, he and Béla Bartók went around together. They collected about 10,000, more than 10,000 folk songs. They recorded and transcribed. You're busy. And cataloged. Yeah, they were very busy. And... What's really sad is that the world wars kept redrawing all the boundaries and in that area in Eastern Europe, right? So that was a nightmare yeah. of all kinds of bound, um, borders changing and they would get locked out of certain areas suddenly and wouldn't be able to go record there and just... Well, really, and just really people sad. displaced from yeah. their homeland and then you got yeah. a mixing of sorts of different song. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, one of the pieces that Bartok did that is way more of a transcription, so a literal retelling of a folk song than it is inspired by, is a set of uh, pieces for piano he wrote called Four Children. And this is a collection of 42 Slovak and 43 Hungarian folk songs verbatim. And then he added harmony to it. So they're all really, not all, but they're mostly quite short less than a minute each. Cool. Uh, And they just, as I mentioned before, kind of run the gamut of human emotion in terms of dances, sleeping, you know, fighting, just all the things. All things that children do. All things that children do. So let's let's listen listen to a couple. Let's listen to a couple of them. talk man come on and what a beautiful example of tempo coming and going and harmony too really here's one called drinking song drinking your juice 
your Cabernet. <laughs> Drink a little Tokaya Sensia. Maybe that's what they were like, wetting your teeth with these sweet <laughs> elixirs. I don't know. Very like regal wines from Hungary. Drink Amazing. your Putunjos. And then there's one called Drunkard's Song. Let's listen to Drunkard's Song. Yeah, let's listen to Drunkard's Song. Yeah, this is the end of the night for sure. Yes, <laughs> stumbling. I have lots of time left in me tonight. Oops, just tripped on the curb. Amazing. <laughs> I love how he's going back and forth between major and minor in this one. And the tempo, but bum <laughs> just stumbling. So good. That's pretty great. Yeah. I, do you want me to go on? Yeah, I please. I can go on. So a little more about ethnomusicology, because it's not simply about recording folk music. It's also about understanding the kind of role that music plays in a culture or a particular song plays in a culture. It's about learning what instruments are uh, used in that culture and how those instruments are important. What roles do instruments play? You know, a trumpet is a very different instrument to an American, for example, than a violin. You know, those have different roles, right? Mm -hmm. Or a banjo or, you know, I mean, so it's kind of absorbing all of that information as well. It's learning what rhythms are used in culture and how rhythms, again, what kind of roles rhythms have and what types of rhythms are there. Are they asymmetrical? Are they symmetrical? Uh, what scales are used in a culture? So there's, I mean, it's an all-encompassing look at the music and... It's an ology. An it's ology. All, it's, it's an all-encompassing Yes, it's study. an ology. Yes. Well, because we're going to talk about a really cool Turkish composer next, can I talk about Amphora? Yes. Well... I'm going to talk about this next producer and their use of amphora. So when we think of preserving and conserving, whether it's technique, whether it's a tradition in your wine region, most of the time people will think of, at some point, uh, grapes that are native to that area. So I'm going to travel, all of us are going to travel right now to northeastern Spain in a region called Penedes, which is very close to Barcelona. Penedes is um, literally the area that we're talking about is less than an hour away. It's a lot of the vineyards see the sea. And we're in cava country. So for those of you that like cava and you've heard of Permata, you've heard of Juvei Camps, you've heard of Codorniu, that's where this area is. And the local grapes there, you think of Macabeo, you think of Charello, you think of Garut, Subirant parent, grapes like that. But in the 80s and we'll say even 90s, better better said 90s, um, in the early 2000s, there was an influx of money and investment there. Of course, what was popular then? Gewürztraminer, Riesling, Cabernet Sauvignon, Pinot Noir, and Sauvignon Blanc. And those grapes, this region is not immune, was not immune to people wanting to plant these internationally recognized grapes in the area. So this producer that we're going to taste right now, Clote de les Soleres, a friend of mine, Carles, is making the wine there. And Carles is, he has Macabeo, he has Charello, but he also has Chardonnay and Cabernet. Now, did he go and plant those? 
No. <laughs> but were they there when he decided like, hey, you know, I might as well like make wine because they were selling all their grapes in the 60s, started to sell grapes to the co-op because that's was way more profitable at the time. There are many producers that start uprooting because they have the money. I'm going to uproot all my Cabernet and plant native grapes because that's cooler. It's more native to your yeah. terruño. Well, Carles was like, well, I have Cabernet, so I'm going to make it in the best way and traditional way that I know how. Mm-hmm. So Carles, let me pour you some, Emily. Yeah. So we're in the village of Piera, which here they have like calcareous clay soils that has kind of some gravelly kind of topsoil. And here you have Cabernet that has been fermented with native yeast, just like the Dolcetto. Um, no sulfur, just like the Dolcetto. And here he is doing a little ferment, a light ferment in stainless steel, but then he's aging it in amphora for about a little over a year. And I've had his Cabernet that he does not age in amphora, and it's like undrinkable <laughs> sooner. This you can drink sooner because it's the aging has allowed for it to breathe through those microporous you know, holes yeah. in, a, in a terracotta vessel. And it's absolutely beautiful. This is a 2017, so now it's about three and a half years old. And it's just absolutely stunning. It's like got all the dark kind of brooding fruits that Mediterranean Cabernet you'd think it would have. Mm-hmm. But then it's got this rusticity that speaks of kind of like a if there was a garrigue of that area, meaning like scrub brush and pine and what's around lavender, but instead of being in Provence, where everyone talks about Garrigue or the Southern Rhone, now we're talking about Garrigue of of Penedès and what it could smell like. And mm. I think you get a lot of that in this wine. Blackberry for sure. There's a little bit of there's some volatile acidity yeah. for sure, some nail polish remover. Yeah. But I do get like a potpourri of sorts. Yeah. That's un- unlike the Dolcetto. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not as leathery. Right, right. I agree. Palette's just like... Wow. It's like a mouthful. Yeah, it is. And here you'd imagine where you'd be like, wow, well, we're sitting pretty in a warm climate with Cabernet. This has got to be 16% alcohol too, just to feel how like rich it feels. But it's actually... It's 13% alcohol. So this is medium bodied. I think it's just... He's preserving tradition by making wine in his, you know, 16th century farmhouse. Yeah. Or I, I should say an uh, appendage of that 16th century farmhouse. Okay. And he's using amphora, but he's also preserving the tradition of like what was there right. when he decided to make wine instead of just, yeah. I'm going to quote unquote preserve tradition by like uprooting all this stuff and planting new stuff. Well, that's <laughs> being, that's actually saying you got quite a bit of money to yeah. do some sort of endeavor like that. Yeah. Is there anything you don't like about it? Is that nail polish remover a little too strong for you? No, the VA doesn't bother me. I think that's VA in the right way, as your friend Kate, I believe, would say. It doesn't bother me at all, not even a little. Um, The tannin is a little more aggressive in this to me than the dolcetto. Most definitely. And And I think maybe that could be because there's so much less acid, it's more pronounced tannin. I don't know. I I don't think it's the less acid, although that's a very good assessment. I think more than that, Cabernet is just more of a tannic grape than Dolcetto. Amphora, how this is lined and how the concrete is, the Amphora could give a little bit more tannin and texture than the Dolcetto. So it's a combination also of soil in the Dolcetto, they have silty soils, clay and silt. And silt can allow for this 
think of silt as like alluvial. Think of, you know, kind of sand at the bottom of a river mm-hmm. with a little bit of mud maybe. Mm-hmm. That's got a little bit more of a glossy, just thinking about it, feel yeah. than calcareous like limestone, chalky clay yeah. can be a little bit more rough and tumble. And Yeah, I like it though. I like it a lot. As far as a red wine goes, I'd probably prefer the Dolcetto mm-hmm. on, on most days, but I do love this too. It's well, really good. And what I like too is this is the type of wine that if that volatile nature is a little too high for some people, because on the palate, you don't get as much as you do on the nose. We're drinking out of really nice wine glasses that I almost just broke on the microphone. <laughs> um, but if you put this in like a little kind of squat, little drinking vessel, little glass, like they would drink yeah. at a bar in Spain, then that would kind of blow off. You wouldn't notice it as much and okay. the palate would be a little smoother. Interesting. So Yeah. It's still very delicious. Yeah. Yeah, I, I wouldn't I would not turn it away, that's for sure. Well, what what else you got for me? I mentioned earlier that um, in Bela Bartok's quest to collect folk music, he ended up in Turkey. And in 1936, that's when Bartok visited Turkey. And he met up with a man named Ahmet Adnan Saigun. Saigun lived from 1907 to 1991. And Saigun is credited with basically single-handedly creating... A blend between Turkish music, Turkish folk music, uh, and Western classical music. Saigun loved string quartets, symphonies, cantatas. He loved the Western music tradition and aimed to incorporate that with his own life and the music of his country, which when he was born was not called Turkey, but eventually became Turkey. Ottoman Empire, for those of you that like a little history. Indeed. World War I, man, changed it all. <laughs> so Saigun studied in France, and actually Saigun's father taught him French when he was young, so that was really helpful. And so one of the things that Saigun was able to do to help l- teach himself music theory and stuff from the Western classical music tradition was translate encyclopedia articles about music from French encyclopedias into Turkish. Well, and wasn't he like appointed to some presidential something? Like before he was 30, he was composing music for the head of the country? Like that's yeah, ridiculous. He he really made a splash, as it were. He's first of all just a really gifted composer. And then to take folk music from Turkey and and the 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 music he grew up with, the scales he grew up with, the rhythms he grew up with, and incorporating that into you know, a, a orchestra on stage was remarkable. And he wrote a lot of piano music too, but he did write symphonies, string quartets. Um, he wrote operas. Uh, Are we going to talk about the Turkish makam? We're going to talk about a set of pieces he wrote on Aksak rhythms. Mm-hmm. And Aksak rhythms are traditional Ottoman rhythms that have some kind of alternating pattern between two and three. So one of the easiest examples to hear is actually from the jazz world. The Dave Brubeck Ensemble Quartet uh, did a tune called Blue Rondo a la Turk. Let's hear it. And it goes one, two, one, two, one, two, one, two, three, one, two, one, two, one, two, one, two, three, one, two, one, two, one, two, one, two, three. That's the pattern. 
I've heard yes. the tune. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's an Aksak rhythm. And so uh, Ahmet Saigun based a lot, actually, a lot of piano music off of Aksak rhythms. And uh, let's listen to some. This particular piece is called 10 Sketches on Aksak Rhythms. There's also, I think, preludes on Aksak Rhythms and maybe a, another piece or two that he based these uh, this music off of these rhythms. This is number eight. Is the Aksak rhythm always that? Is it always that combination, or is it similar, but it could be a different combination of rhythms? Okay. Yep, it can be a different combination of rhythms, usually uh, adding up to an odd number. Do you mind if, just because we're here and we're listening to the 10 sketches on Aksak rhythms, do you mind yeah. listening to number two? Because to me, this reminds me of one thing I took from listening to these almost more than picking up on the rhythm yeah. aspect was that idea of like the Turkish makam, which is like just different, not to complicate matters or to get too far into your territory, but like we have scales that we know in the Western world. And then there are scales in other places, especially when we get into Eastern countries that to us might not sound like a scale that we know. Um, and so this is something that to me very much sounded Turkish and makam is like a, a, without getting too detailed, like a scale. Like right there, especially like you, you, yep. you can tell like to us, it kind of starts and it maybe sounds minor. And then all of a sudden it shoots in a direction that yep. is pleasing to the ear, but it's not in like a wheelhouse of something that so I just thought that was really fun. It is, and that's that's one of the things that Bartok was talking about when he was talking about freedom from major and minor mm. scales. Mm. This kind of tonality, this kind of um, these you know uh, Greek scales and modes and yes, hashtag scores and points. <laughs> yes. Let's listen to number one quickly as well, because you can really hear a division of uh, beats between two and three. Um, in, in this, uh, this is sketch number one from 10 sketches on Oxoc rhythms. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Isn't that great? Yeah. that's a little bit of music from uh, Saigon, and we'll hear more Saigon in a minute if, if that's cool. I've got more. There's this producer, I don't mean that to have this be an episode about Spanish producers, majority, <laughs> but you know, hey, <laughs> Why not, whatever, man? whatever. There's um, a producer in Zamora, so Z-A-M-O-R-A, his name is Juanjo, and his wife, I believe, is Maribel. And Juanjo, my guess is he's in his 
early 60s. Pardon me, Juanjo, if you're younger than that. But what I love about them is that they are, they're finding really cool vineyards. So Zamora is more known for its jamón, its cured pork, mm. than it is for its wine. There's really okay. not a lot of people making wine that gets to the States and then to boot that's made in a transparent fashion like like his wine is. Okay. We have a wine in front of us, his 2019 Malveral, which is a mostly Mavazia with some Palomino. Now, is this a super traditional wine from the area? Yes and no. What I like in how he is conserving tradition or preserving tradition is Juan Jose's, listen, there are wines that I remember tasting when I was younger that had this kind of perlant quality, which is like less than sparkling. It's less than a pet nat in terms of how much it sparkles. Sometimes the Spaniards will call it aguja. And he remembers wines that had that. Now that's just all but gone in the area. And he will bottle a wine with enough residual sugar to not be a pet nat, but it usually gets this little tiny bit of aguja. Sometimes it doesn't, right? Because he's not an enologist. So he's just kind of going with what he knows from the mm -hmm. past. He also is using, in this case, um, Malvasia is probably one of the most prolific grapes in terms of its clones, like how many clones are around. You have like a gazillion types of Malvasia in Spain, in Italy, in Greece, on the Mediterranean islands. And so this is a Malvasia from the area. And then he also blends with it Palomino, which you wouldn't think is traditional, but Palomino hundreds of years ago with the Moors came up by way of west of Madrid and made its way up north to this area, Zamora, around the area of Bierzo. And so people nowadays are blending it in with stuff. But if, if you're wanting to showcase something kind of cool from your region, you might blend a little bit of it in like this with your Malvasia, or you might do it alone. And I just think it's a really cool, I mean, this wine is golden in color. It almost looks like a sauterne, like a dessert wine from Yeah, I mean, I've never from seen France. that, but yeah. It's incredible. It's beautiful. And it smells like it's going to be an orange wine. Like yeah. it, it smells like it's going to have some texture. Yeah. Got this apricotty mm -hmm. thing. Yeah, big time. Kind of like dandelions too, like floral, but not Whoa. not like potpourri, more like weedy kind of. Weird. Weird. And then the palate's like honey and grapes, even though it's dry. Honey and mm -hmm. grapes. There's really no sparkle here. It's like negligible. Yeah. There's a little like flirting with bubbles, but yeah. you know, when you pour it, it doesn't, there's no froth. Crazy. But like golden minerals, like if, if gold tasted like something that wasn't yeah. metallic, yeah, you know, it like has it's just strange. And I think that this is really only you could find that here because that Palomino gives it like this nuttiness. Yeah. But it's not like oaky nutty. It's mm. like mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. seeds. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then Malvasia can kind of be like weeds and flowers, but more of the weed spectrum than the super aromatic. Yeah, yeah. And... I just think this is something that is conserving a really cool blend of grapes that isn't really, you don't see a lot of people doing this elsewhere other than Northwest-ish, because mm -hmm. in the South, they're not doing that. They're making sherry. And the fact that it's got that little aguja, he's preserving something he likes to drink. You know, mm -hmm. he remembers from his, I don't want to say his youth, but I mean, as we're listening to bar talk, <laughs> people maybe are drinking in certain areas of the world when they're under 21. Yeah. <laughs> No sulfur added, by the way. Mm. Not filtered. Wow. All stainless steel. 
little bitter on the finish. Mm. It's really, really good. Mm. Lulo. Lulo. We've been talking about Bent Paddle's portage that's spiked with pineapple and Lulo. Oh, yeah. Lulo. Is that it's what like, it tastes like? Well, yeah. It's kind of like this passion fruit meets limey meets hmm. guava, but it's one thing. I'd have to try a Lulo to really know. Or do you try Lulo or do you try a Lulo? Kind of like the Mandalorian. Try a grapefruit. Try a grapefruit. Okay. I think it could be either or tomato, tomato. Saigon? A little bit more about Saigon? Mm-hmm. Just to make it clear, if I didn't in my last Saigon segment, that he also collected and transcribed folk music from Turkey and the Ottoman Empire. So he did what Bartok was doing as well. And so that's very cool. And there are so many people who did this and are still doing this because there are still cultures around the world that we don't have a grasp on, on how music works for them. So, I mean, it's still something that's studied around the world. But, you know, in the early part of the 20th century, it was really all about, oh, this is my homeland. Let me study this, you know, and mm-hmm. now it's become people go all over and study all kinds of things. But in any event, uh, yeah, Saigun did that in Turkey. He uh, did some of that with Bartok, as I mentioned, in the 1930s uh, and just found really great ways of of weaving that into his own uh, musical output. Uh, another way he kind of, I guess, brought attention to uh, the history of Turkey and preserved it in, in a way was by writing uh, a big oratorio. We've talked about oratorio before. It's a... Uh, work on a stage with a chorus and an orchestra, but not with costumes or any kind of staging. Like, nobody's wandering around. And He wrote this oratorio about a Sufi mystic and one of the first poets to actually use the Turkish language to write his poetry as opposed to Persian or Arabic. Dude, I've heard about this Named uh, Yunus Emre. And it's a beautiful oratorio. It's about an hour long and gained quite a bit of recognition uh, internationally. And so let's just hear how this oratorio opens. It's a a very beautiful choral work by the Turkish composer uh, Saigun, you know, preserving Turkish history through setting these poems to music. doesn't resonate with me for some reason. It's like very baritone and very like... I think I would need context in order to enjoy it. Like I can appreciate its musical worth, but I think I would want more of what am I listening to to be... I don't know, is that fair? It's helpful in an oratorio or in a choral work it's really helpful to have the text, right? Yeah. Um, To help you understand what's happening. The piece is an hour long, so, you know, you... A lot of various. There's a lot of things change.
What I also really wanted to make sure that I touched on with um, Juanjo Maribel, because I didn't even mention the name of the wine um, or their winery, is Micro Bodega del Alumbro. And I think that they're just keeping the idea and the spirit alive of the artisanal winemaker, because when I taste their wines, they don't make the same wines the entire lineup year in and year out. It's sort of depending on what they're in the mood to make, what grapes grow well, and are they going to blend stuff? Are they not? Because usually Malveral doesn't have Palomino because it was really scarce harvest. They added some Palomino. I think that they're really, when I look at these three producers, not only are they all, I guess I'm getting to like what I should have mentioned at the beginning, but at the end is they're all keeping alive this idea of, yes, they're natural and that makes me happy, but this idea of the artisanal winemaker that is doing the best they can by their environment. They're making the best wines they can representative of what their region and their their farm or their vineyard has to offer. But in the end, you can taste that they don't taste like a dime a dozen, you know, yeah. that there is something very special and that, that, that they are preserving because there's a lot of people that's making wines that are this artisanal and they just kind of taste like a lot of other natty wine, you know, like a mm-hmm. lot of other glue-glue. Yeah. Dump me down the hatch. And these are all, I don't think they're glue-glue, you know, they're definitely artisanal and worth paying attention to. It's delicious. So glad you brought it. Cheers to uh, preserving and conserving traditions. To scores and bores. Scores and bores. Thank you for listening to this episode of Scores and Pours with me, Jill Mott, and Emily Reese. You can find links and information about this episode and support us financially, thank you very much, at patreon.com slash scoresandpours. You'll also find a link on that same page to our merch, which includes hoodies and tees and all the cozy things. We are on Instagram at Scores and Pours. That's a great place to get in touch with us. You could send us a DM and uh, give us some show ideas, give us a little feedback. We'd love to hear from you. And also, if you could... Uh, rate us on iTunes. That'd be amazing. When I say all the cozy things, I digress. <laughs> Hoodies and tees. Yeah. No hats yet. <laughs> Consider supporting the musicians we feature today by buying their music. Edited by Jill Mott and Emily Reese. Our producer is Sam Keenan. Oh, Sam. Sam. I miss you, buddy. Scores and Pours is a production of June Media Inc. June. June.